From WNET in New York, welcome to WNET Up Next. Hi, I'm Tom Stewart. At Up Next, we take you for a behind-the-scenes look at what's happening here with an insider's view of our programs and the people who create them. For over 36 years, our guest has been involved in developing, producing, and often directing WNET's performing arts presentations on PBS, particularly for the Great Performances series, where he serves as the executive producer. He's been nominated over 25 times for a Primetime Emmy, has won five times, and has twice received the prestigious Peabody Award. Please welcome David Horn. David, it's great to have you here. It's nice to see you, even though I'm only hearing you. <laughs> you know, David, as your friend Julie Andrews often says, let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. It is. What, what first drew you to a career in television, particularly in public television? I think like most people in public television, they weren't necessarily drawn. They kind of fell into it. Okay. But because public television programming is so educationally based, you need a certain expertise in the field you're, you're pursuing. So I was a struggling I like to use the word struggling, jazz musician. Oh. I had gone to music school and have a degree in composition, music composition. That and a dime will get you a cup of coffee. But what I really wanted to do was to be a jazz musician. So I was a primary instrument was a tenor saxophone. But I and played. did you pursue that for a while? Oh, yes, I did. And uh, I moved to New York because everybody knows you have to come to New York because if you make it here, you can make it anywhere. So they say. And I was, uh, I was playing jingles, I was playing in wedding bands, I was playing in small, small bands, not making a lot of money, so I was doing some odd jobs along the way. Uh -huh. And then uh, uh, my wife said, you know, why don't you become an office temp? Because that would work well with my music career. Mm -hmm. And because I also played the piano at that time when we had... Well, we had electric typewriters there then, but uh, much more primitive than what we have now. Probably could, the Selectric. The, the IBM yeah. Selectric with the ball, you know, mm -hmm. with all the yep. letters on it. Very cool machine. I could, uh, believe it or not, type 100 words a minute. I was, you A know, valuable commodity. It was sure, yeah. back then, people don't know. So I went to this agency and applied, and, and uh, they saw my skills and said, oh, great, we'll send you out. And the first place they sent me was to Channel 13. It was like on a 4th of July week, like just after the 4th of July or just before. And I came in to work uh, in George Page's department. George Page became the voice of nature, but he headed, headed up. He was a producer. Actually. Yes, and he was a correspondent for, a war correspondent, in fact, for, for NBC. And he headed up what's called Arts and Features. Mm -hmm. And I worked basically for Walter Goodman, who was the, had been the TV critic for the Times, came to 13, um, found the frustration that is public television and trying to get things made and went back to the Times to be a reviewer. Somebody else in the department said, well, you know, we like you. We have this arts magazine, a local arts magazine called Skyline. And would you like to work on that? And I said, sure, fine. And I ended up being a production assistant on Skyline, and then we added Beverly Sills. It became Skyline, hosted by, by Beverly Sills. And, you know, I was still doing music. Did there come a specific point when you said, 
this is really where I want to be and this is the career I want to make for myself? Well, then I was, you know, it was kind of, I was learning as I was going along because, you know, the television business, the, the physical part of it, production part, it's really an apprentice business. When you bring young people in, no matter what kind of degrees, how skilled they are, you have to learn each step of the way to mm -hmm. where you become independent and, you know, infuse your own personality and point of view into the pieces you're doing. So at, at that point, it was more short magazine documentary style mm -hmm. things. And the first show I worked on with, with Skyline was a profile on Hal Prince. Interesting. Which was kind of a precursor to being able to work with Hal on other projects down the road. And we've been talking to him about another project all these years, 36 years later. Hal's been a very generous person. He remembers me from back then, uh, is very generous to this to this day. But uh, Skyline had limited funding mm -hmm. in Jack Venza's department. Um, Jack Venza at that time was the executive producer of Great Performances, one of the legends of public television, one of the icon figures who Absolutely. helped start up what we know as, as public television. There was a producer that worked for him that did drama named Peter Weinberg, and they had this idea to raise money for 13 and PBS. Why don't we do what the operas and ballets and symphonies do, and let's do a gala. Yeah. So it was the very first gala of stars, yeah, gala of stars. that started uh, in 1979, hosted by Beverly Sills. The music director was James Levine, and we did it with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra at the Met, and we had everybody. We had Pavarotti, Domingo, Marilyn Horn. We had... Uh, uh, Makarova Gudnev, who just uh, had had defected. We we had a scene from West Side Story because that was on Broadway at the time. Hence, again, you know the relationship with Hal Prince. So they said, "You want to work on this?" I came out sure, because I did have a music background, and I, at that point in time, I had studied, in addition to jazz, professional music studies, contemporary classical music of the 20th century, mm -hmm. not opera. I wasn't that versed in opera, so it was kind of, an opera was a big part of it. It was a big part of what great performances did. So I I was kind of learning, and I had this experience where I went and I sat at the Met it, and when we were doing a rehearsal for this show, and I'm sitting in, in the audience like 20 rows away from Leontine Price singing My Man's Gone now, and it was like, Wow. It's kind of a defining amazing. moment. You know, Renata Scotto, Bever, all these people. It was Introduced like, you to a new, a yeah, new world. Yeah, and, it, you know, to the point where I was in in small rehearsal rooms with some of these major stars. It, it truly was, um, I didn't know I was going to have an extended relationship with Pavarotti and Domingo, but it was the golden age, I think, that if we look back, that, you know, at least I grew up with Pavarotti, Domingo, Beverly Lee Team Price, yeah. Beverly, all these at the same time, mm -hmm. you know. And not only were these people a great artist, but they had the ability to cross over. Uh, Beverly would host The Tonight Show. Pavarotti was always on The Tonight Show. Itzhak Perlman who was on that show. It really was right on the cusp of the advent of the, of the compact disc. And the compact disc really exploded for the classical music business. And, and didn't you also do with Pavarotti the very first uh, arena concert yes. in New York? Um, in I believe it was it was 1984. Pavarotti had a a legendary 
semi-notorious manager, Herbert Breslin. Uh, Herbert Breslin was more an impresario, a, a manager who was kind of feared, but he, he had this idea that he could take Pavarotti and put him in arenas and put him in large venues and people would come. But, you know, when I walked out and I looked at the audience, I was like, well, what classical music lover is going to come to this? And it really wasn't. I'm sure there were classical music fans in there, but it was really more like going to a Frank Sinatra concert. He was, becoming, really, he was becoming a pop star. He, it, it, was, it was amazing. And we ended up doing another one a couple years later. All this ultimately led to the three tenors. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the Great Performances series, though, over the years. Again, all of the things you've mentioned uh, really led into that. Mm -hmm. But it is an amazing, amazing run. What are some of the highlights uh, in addition to what we've already spoken about over the years? We could make this not a podcast. We could make it the ring cycle if we talked about all the... We all the highlights. But Funding permitting, we will we'll do an entire... No, it's, it's interesting. When, you know, great performances began as theater in America, dance in America, and music in America that were all combined when Exxon decided they wanted to fund all these, all these different disciplines. So in the early days, there was more emphasis on, on drama and the fine arts. Once I started, we started to expand into more things, into more music theater, popular forms of music. For me, one of the highlights was prior to Natalie Cole winning those seven Grammys for Unforgettable with Love, uh, the duet with her father, yes. and an album album of standards, I had uh, had a communication with her, with her manager, and he played the music for me. Um, but I heard this stuff, and I said, this is really terrific and it was that time a pop star you know when the early ones doing classic american songbook we taped the show prior to her winning all those grammys and i think and the kind timing, of a turning, turning was point. great timing, yeah turning timing point for us too. that's great let's we'll jump ahead to this very season in terms of musical theater uh billy elliott was presented tell us a bit about how that came about um some colleagues that we had worked with on Previous shows had pressed us about collaborating with them to do the 10th anniversary of Billy Elliot. I think one of the interesting things about it is I think the boy in the current cast was probably one of the best I've seen. Mm -hmm. I've probably seen the musical four times, and this kid is just terrific. It's terrific, and it's there for everybody and the yes. national audience who, as we often say in public media, don't get a chance to go to the theater. Everything we do is is about providing access to those that live in places where shows don't tour. Almost more importantly is to have a document. Mm -hmm. And that's always been a great selling point to me, to an artist or a producer or a rights holder. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it have been great when Gypsy was first on Broadway to have the original cast recorded, the production the way it was, the movie musical is not the same production. Sure. So for many years, we chased Gypsy down in various incarnations, and we're finally now, next season, going to present Gypsy on Great Performances, a production that was done in London with Imelda Staunton in the, in the lead role. And it's the, what's exciting for us, it is the stage version. It's the way it was originally written and intended to be seen. So now we have a record. It's like we have 
one of the most valuable uh, records we have is the many of the Balanchine ballets supervised and reblocked by Mr. Balanchine for camera. Mm. You know, when dance is such a visual medium, you can go back and see those dancers that he actually created the dances for shot the way he intended them to be shot. So and that's, that's one thing that public television does that nobody original, else does. Uh, and authentic, yeah. and, and you can't see it anywhere yeah. else. Thinking about musical theater and dance, uh, a wonderful hour performance slash biography of uh, Cheetah Rivera. How did that come about? I've never seen such a reaction for any show I've ever made as I've gotten for Cheetah from the Broadway community. How great, what a beautiful job you did. Forget that. It, the, the, the thing that makes this show great is Cheetah. Absolutely. Cheetah, as we say in the documentary, is the ultimate gypsy. And that gypsy is someone that's really committed, that doesn't look at themselves as a bigger star than anybody else, is always involved, the door is always open, always sitting in the wings and such. She's a big practical joker, whatever. But at the age of 82, to be out there performing, she performs her, her one-woman show. She performed in The Visit, eight performances a week. And when you go back and look at clips from 1955 of her on the Maurice Chevalier show, this was a girl that wanted to be a classical dancer. And she just went on this audition and she, with her friend, and they chose she her, not the friend. She, she gets the, the gig. She gets the gig. And so, okay, yeah, I can do broad. She just does it. And then at some point in her career, it's like, okay, well, you need to act and sing now. Okay, so she just starts acting and singing. And when you look at the Chevalier clip, she has so much presence because of that classical training, but she's so funny and she sings so beautifully. It's it just, and it's just an incredible woman. It was a great show. Another person that uh, I know you've worked with many, many times over the years is Andrea Bocelli, and you've recently completed work on a new program about movie. I guess it's for one of a better description. It's movie music. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about that and show. And but I, I want to tell you. <laughs> yeah, talk about Andrea. You know, a little bit about Andrea. You know, truly, you know, it's one of those unique careers, somebody that can straddle classical and popular music, and helps popularize classical forms as well. When I was first made aware that there was this tenor um, that sang, pop at that time, more popular music, even though he's always want, wanted to focus on, on opera, when, when I was made aware of him and went to Italy to hear, and, and the, the record company wanted to make a big investment and try to launch his career, I remember they brought in all these people. They brought in my old good friend, uh, dearly departed Phil Ramone, to make these demos. What would it be like if we took this artist, put him together with one of the pop stars on the Universal label and had them sing this song in English and do all these things? And, you know, went round and round and round and just said, why don't we just have him do what he does? Mm. And he did what he did. You know, it was just phenomenal. He had a song, Time to Say Goodbye, but, you know, you can be a one-hit wonder in this world, he was able to build on that whole program on Sacred Arias that we used as a, a, as a Christmas show. It was funny because we had to tape the Christmas portions with the family in the middle of July <laughs> in his parents' house, which, you know, he was making jokes about in Italian. But a concert at Statue of Liberty, um, you know, many Las more Vegas, shows. Lake later. Las Vegas. Yeah, many more shows. Portofino. 
later. Well, the Lake Las Vegas show was really a turning point because that's when he first worked with David Foster. David Foster had written The Prayer, which uh, was for the movie Quest for Fire, and it ended up being a duet performed on the Oscars between Bocelli and Celine Dion. And that's when they first worked together, and David was desperate to work with him. And they came upon this idea to do an album called Amore, which focused on classical Latin popular mm-hmm. music. And it was a huge success for him. Then it was a turning point, more singing in English, combining a true pop album again with classical aspects. So that led to, you know, several shows with David at Christmas show. And the next show for Andre Bocelli was to do a, a show focusing on movie music. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting because we did it at the Dolby Theater, which is the home of the Oscars sure. out, out in L.A. But it combines Hollywood film composers as well as Italian. It's songs that were written for movies, songs that were created using melodies from scores to create a whole from new songs. song. Yeah. We have, say, from Cinema Paradiso and Me Moncari. We have movie musicals, so we have Maria. Probably the most most... Beautifully sung Maria, I think I've ever heard. And that opens the show. I look forward to it. It's uh, Bafo. Is that saying the movie visits? Sacco Bafo. Variety says Sacco Bafo. You know, you, in addition to your producer hat, uh, often wear the director hat, uh, television directing. And I know you were involved with the Bocelli show in that aspect. So I'd like to ask you about that aspect of your of your career, the directing, and how that fits in with everything else you're doing. It it takes a bit of my time, but you know I I really enjoy it so much. I was fortunate to be able to grow up in the television business, working with many great directors, uh, particularly Kirk Browning who did the early Metropolitan Operas, every live from Lincoln Center for years. But his career dated back to Toscanini NBC Orchestra and many live operas and musical and plays in the 50s and the 60s. And so I was able to see what's really a craft for television, multi-camera directing, how it all how it all worked and and what you needed to do and um, you were speaking before about you know this business being uh, of apprenticeships that yeah. sounds like the, the no it's ab- absolutely of that. you just can't throw somebody in I went to college and I took some directing because you know that's just not the practical way it works so Jack Venzo was always very much interested in seeing young people have opportunities and grow. There were a lot of people that went through great performances over the year that that went on to interesting and diverse careers in in media. And he was supportive of me being a director. Mm. You know, I started out doing documentary with some performance in it and then ultimately some concerts. I've done musical theater. I've done straight plays. And other people have wanted to hire me outside of great performances. But I say, you know, I'm a, a, a public television lifer. But I also you know, as executive producer, only want to do projects where I control that part of it as well. I know that the quality is going to be there. I know that we're going to have ample rehearsal time. We're going to give the artists what they need that would have the same quality as any sort of network primetime variety series. So uh, I've, I've sort of, 
I guess by default, because we have a good relationship, become Mr. Michelli's kind of personal resident, director, resident, resident director, and also with with David Foster and the collaborations we've done over the years. And those are, you know, important relationships to have. And I really appreciate what they do, and they appreciate what I do. So it's it's worked out. I know there are so many challenges in what you do as both producer, executive producer, director. Can you touch on that? What are some of the biggest challenges that face you in producing a series like Great Performances? Oh, there are many. Primarily, it's it's uh, the bottom line for everything in public television. It's financing. Mm-hmm. But I think there's a great opportunity for public television because public television has a, a large infrastructure built around broadcast. And right now, cable stocks are falling right and left because people are cutting the cable. So if people cut the cable, particularly in our listening area in New York, and you put up a digital antenna, you can get all the networks. You can get WNET, all our discrete channels for free. And then you can go to Netflix or something like that and subscribe and do what you want. So I think having that broadcast capability and being the only public media in every market is a tremendous opportunity. I mean, people have written the death knell for public television in my entire career, the fear of the 500-channel universe. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the 500-channel universe didn't turn out to be what everybody thought because you're stuck with 500 channels that the cable provides you, and you may only watch 10 of them. So in terms of public media going forward, particularly as a performing arts platform, you feel that it's a a strong time and there's a lot of opportunity ahead. Absolutely. I mean, we're partners with other nonprofit organizations. We provide access to what they do to people. As I said earlier, people don't have that access. So as long as we can engage in that partnership, which has always been at the core of our mission, I think that we're going to succeed, and we're doing it with local off-Broadway theaters, bringing those performances, which I know you want to talk about at a future date. I do. Something we call theater close-up, but it's—we're doing more than ever with less. Yes. You know, and technology has enabled us to do that to a certain degree, but it's just—I just hate to say it, Tom, that we've just been at it so damn long. (laughs) There's no stopping (laughs) That we figured out a more inexpensive and more efficient way to do it. That's wonderful. We began by, I quoted from uh, Julie Andrews, and I know that she is someone you have worked with many, many times over the years and have a wonderful relationship. I wanted to ask you, I know that she has been, for many years, been doing the New Year's concert Mm -hmm. from Vienna. Is that happening again? uh, Yes, it's happening again this year. She's come back. She loves doing it. Um, Julie, like anybody who's grown up in the theater that had us a theater background, are the easiest people in the world to work with. Do you have um, any Julie stories you can share with us? Not in public. Okay. <laughs> okay. <All laughs> but, right. you know, Julie... She always Julie generous. Me as being a consummate professional but, but, and extremely you know, generous. Th- the New Year's concert was something that, you know, we were able to take and make an annual tradition for people. That You know, it was Bill Moyer's favorite show every year, and Bill always wanted to be the host. Oh, but at that time, Walter Cronkite was the host. <laughs> Another favorite entertainer of mine has always been Tony Bennett. I know he's another person that you've done many, many uh, programs with. Yeah. Tell me about Tony, working with Tony. He Energizer, again like, uh, Energizer Bunny. Really? You know, well, Tony's, you have to attribute a lot of what's happened with Tony 
to his son, Danny Bennett, who's been his manager. Danny came up with the idea of doing all the duets, which we had the two duets series. So out of that, um, we're out in uh, at the TV Critics Press Tour, where I brought Tony to perform for 45 minutes, and, and all the television critics are in one room, and they get to ask, you know, you sit on a panel, and they get to ask questions. And Tony's sitting there, and they were asking him about the show, and all he could do was rave about this young singer, Lady Gaga. He said, trust me, this girl is the real deal. She's really got a voice. She's she's dedicated. And that led to them figuring out how to work together. together. And I was fortunate to direct their their concert together that we Another taped at Jazz at Lincoln Center. And he, at his age... His incredible pitch, by the way, he was on Bocelli in Central Park, too. <laughs> so there's a connection there. But There's it, sort of a David uh, Horn repertory company. Yes, to have the stamina, you know, because they had performed those songs live together. And Tony just went out there and he just, like, you know, we did a couple extra takes, but he just nailed it. Inspiring. All <laughs> these people we're mentioning, I think, are particularly inspiring well, to us but, but because what, of their continued... Uh, but passion and their ability to work, uh, Tony Bennett, Julie. Uh, well, you know, and, and to meet young artists that have that same passion in, in that same vein. You know, I, when I was working with an artist, at, we I, I did his first television show, Josh Groban. I was out of David Foster's house to have a meeting out in, out in Malibu. And in his studio on his compound, it was quite a compound at that time, was an artist that came out to meet me and he said... And I remember this clear as day. He walks out and looks me in the face. He says, you don't know who I am, but you're going to know. And I'm going to do a show with you. It's going to be on great performances. And I'm like, yeah, great, fine. It was Michael Buble. So a couple of years later, it was like 2006, I directed Michael Buble's first show. But there was a guy that he wasn't a manufactured artist. He was a guy that was in bars going around the world in Smolikovs and learning that craft of singing those classic standards. And he was something that that you don't find too much these days. Yes, the voice and and American Idol are turning out all these song stylists. You know, how many song stylists can we can we have in the commercial world? Michael was an entertainer, a throwback to American Masters is now doing a documentary on uh, Sammy Davis Jr. What an incredible talent. He he dancer, singer, actor, but He's an entertainer. Yes. Guys that knew how to, to entertain you during the course of their concert. And if you go to a Michael Buble concert, that's 50% of the show, how he entertains you. Very charismatic guy. Yeah, very charismatic. And Again, David, if, if money were no object, and, and going ahead, and even if money were maybe a consideration, but what, what would you most like to do in the future? What would be a dream project for you? <laughs> I don't, don't know. You know, you never have that luxury in public television of thinking that money's no object. Mm-hmm. So, but you I, do have dream projects, though. Okay, so if money is an object, still, well, what, would you you know, like, I, what would you like to do? You know, I I want to do more Broadway, mm-hmm. more musicals. There are composers that I think deserve tributes I want to do because it was like the first thing I did I want to do a tribute to Hal Prince mm-hmm. um, I years and years ago with Susan Stroman we tried to do a 
a tribute to the music of Alan Menken. Mm-hmm. And that was that was back in the 90s, which shows how prolific he's been. Well, now we're probably going to finally get a chance to do that show, so some things never die. You know, we weren't doing a lot of drama and great performances, and I'm proud to have brought drama back in a in a way that I think works for us. There's so much scripted drama on television right now that my focus has been Shakespeare. And Shakespeare, not as if from live from the stage, is trying to make it in a way that a younger generation can digest it, and that's been through films. I want you to come back and tell us more about this, more about Shakespeare, more about Theater Close-Up, which I know is the local dramatic show, and even more about NYC Arts, which is our current local art show that you produce. But we sort of run out of time today. So I, I just want to thank you so much for spending this time. I can't even time. plug Joan Baez's 75th oh, birthday no, oh, no, celebration. Oh, no, 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 please, 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 I'm sorry. And, and, and there's a, <laughs> please plug Joan Baez. You know, that, that just shows the diversity of what we do. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and you're doing a, and the Chicago Lyric Opera you're producing. Yeah. Well, uh, the Joan Baez... It's hard to believe she's 75, but if anybody deserves a celebration, it's her. We're gonna, we'll be taping it in January, and it fe- features many of her contemporaries and people that were influenced by her and her career. We're also, I've I've been when I prior to being the executive producer, I was the head of music for great performances, and outside of the, the Metropolitan Opera which always had a presence, we tried to do a lot of regional opera. And what I encouraged the regional companies like San Francisco, L.A., Dallas, Houston, uh, Lyric Opera Chicago, was to try to create an identity for themselves by doing contemporary new commissioned works Mm -hmm. to try to get more new opera into there. And there have been many that, that we did over the years, and we have another new one coming up with Lyric Opera that we'll be taping uh, in early January based on the Anne Paget novel, Bel Canto. And what's really interesting about it is, you know, in a new phase in her illustrious career, Renee Fleming developed the project for Lyric Opera and her role out there as an artistic advisor. So, you know, it's great to be working with Renee, who's a great supporter of this station, after all the programs we've done. And I did her first appearance on public television when she won the Richard Tucker Award. You know, and I interviewed this young lady who had been a jazz singer. A jazz and singer from she, Rochester, she New York. She was a jazz singer, and, I, I, you know, we had that nice connection, and then you hear her voice open up. It's so glorious. I can't even remember what year we did that. But, uh, you know, a lot of there were a lot of other great young winners that went on to careers there. But it's nice to see that continuity and see Renee not giving up singing, but a, 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 a different phase, different, in her, different. much like Domingo, with running multiple opera companies around the world. Con- continuing to conduct. Who's also in the Bocelli Cinema Show. It's all, it's all <laughs> a very... <laughs> it's everything sort of knit, knit together. David, it really is true. We need to have you back for six more podcasts. Uh, the, the Ring series of WNET up next with David Horn. Well, I think you started with a quote from one artist. Let's start at the very beginning. Yes. I'm going to use another quote from another artist. All right. Time to say goodbye. I think so. I think so. Thanks so much. And join us again for another edition of Up Next. And do give us your feedback. Tell your friends about us. And, of course, do become a subscriber. 
WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. I'm Tom Stewart. <laughs>